0: Changing academic life. I'm Geraldine Fitzpatrick, and this is a podcast series where academics and others share their stories, provide ideas, and provoke discussions about what we can do individually and collectively to change academic life for the better. My guest here is Professor Saul Greenberg. Up until a year ago, he was a full professor in the Department of Computer Science at the University of Calgary. He's now emeritus and enjoying his passion for outdoor pursuits. We cover lots of topics in this podcast and there's something for everyone, whether you're a PhD student deciding your focus and your publication strategy or a supervisor, um, a new faculty member starting up a research group, and all of us struggling with the demands of academic life. Saul's a great role model for reminding us that work will never end and it's up to us to create the balance we want in our lives. Saul, thank you very much for joining me tonight across the time difference. It's absolutely
1: a pleasure to be with you, Geraldine.
0: You've been you've been an enormous sort of mentor and role model for me, and I also just want to uh, recognize you know the the profile you have in the field as well. Because if I look at your web page here, you are an ACM fellow and an ACM Kai Academy member an ACM UIST Lasting Impact Award and and a Canadian Human Computer Communication Society Achievement Award among various others and listed in CHI Pioneers. Mm -hmm. So, Uh,
1: You know the best thing about that I think it shows what you can do as long as you don't die early and stay in one field for a long time. Longevity has its benefits. Um, I don't think I'm were particularly harder or I'm particularly better than many of the folks out there. It's just uh, staying focused and being in the field often has its benefits.
0: But you also have an H index of 78 and, and, you know, we can dispute whether they, these indexes have value, but nonetheless, that's a significant sort of H index and 22,000 citations. So you may have worked hard, but you've also been able to have a real impact on the field. And I think a lot of your Work The the sort of theme that I see across your work is sort of building toolkits that are really at the forefront of some of the fields in the groupware work and then moving into the Ubicomp work. And that's been really influential.
1: I I think part of that is um, working with great students. Yeah. I can't take the benefit for that h index myself. Uh, A lot of the work that I've done with people who you've interviewed, like Carl Gutwin, uh, and their work is just tremendous. And uh, and you may, if this is actually geared toward other academics, especially young ones, one of the biggest pieces of advice I could give is to. Work with really good students and nurture them, and they 'll do great things and along the way they 'll do great things for you too
0: so how do uh, you how do you pick a good student so it's one thing saying work with good students but how do you how do you pick a good student?
1: Oh, I wish I could answer that properly because every time I think I, knew, I have the answer, hmm. the next student comes along and uh, and challenges my strategy um, it's uh, in part, if especially as a new prof, and I, and I do mentor other new profs, um, in the early years, you're kind of desperate to get students yeah. because somebody has to do the work, he has the funding, you have to spend it, it looks good for you. So there's a temptation to grab whoever comes along. And I think it's really important to not only scrutinize their record, and by the record, I don't mean just GPA, yeah. but to actually look at the work that they've done. Email them. Uh, get a portfolio for them and some of their work. Read read their work. If uh, they if it's a somebody applying to a master's, try to see if they've done any written work that you could look at, mm. or look at their masters if they they're going for a PhD. Talk to them on the phone. Uh, anything you can do to find out more about them will be helpful. It's not a guarantee, but it it makes a big difference. Yeah. There's certainly some people who I've looked at who look fantastic on paper who I realized, no, I don't really want to work with them. And also vice versa. I've had quite a few students who, on paper, they were okay, but not outstanding. But they turned out to be just fantastic researchers. They had that mindset of what it takes to be a good researcher rather than somebody who can just do good exams. So, no, no recipe, but just diligence.
0: Yeah. And I, I liked the part as well about just as, as soon as you think you've got it, uh, someone comes along to challenge you. Because I don't know, I feel like every PhD student is really different and a big part of it is getting to know them and how to work with them. You can't have the same strategy for all of them.
1: Oh, I, absolutely. It's like I've now worked with a great many grad students and and I think I know how to deal with this now. And then the next student comes comes along and you know there's times I'm just tearing my hair out. Well, that's metaphorically speaking <laughs> the top left, but I'm just I'm just tearing my hair out, trying to figure out a strategy that will help them move forward. And um and I'll try ones that work with other students and it doesn't work on them. Um, so I have to develop new strategies. It's 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 part of I guess being a supervisor is trying to understand your students and being responsive to their needs and trying to help them along. But it's no
0: formula, as I said. Has that been the same all the way through? Like right up to the end, would you say that it's been trial and error and finding out with each one, or has it is it less as as you get more experience?
1: It's it's right to the end. <laughs> it's I uh, and I I'm not gonna of course talk about any of my students, but um there's some that's been incredibly easy. Uh, they seem to almost guide themselves. Others where it's just a struggle all the way along. Um, it's most of my students have been fantastic. And the ones that, uh, did have issues in the end turned out to be fantastic yeah there are some odd exceptions but it takes work yeah so again there's no formula for it it just takes time and effort communication especially uh, responsiveness and looking at the work trying to give them advice when when they're when you see issues as they come up um being on top of things uh but yeah i get as frustrated and as joyful as anyone else about uh but my students and
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's good to hear so I mean good to hear that it's a common experience Um do you tend to give students topics or do you let them find their own how do you manage that process uh,
1: it again it varies per student um, in the beginning days I was quite open-ended and sometimes I found that that could come back to bite you um, uh, what i what I realize is that I have to know enough about the topic that they're working on so that I could offer them solid advice and save them a lot of time on it. Uh, I've had students who've who've wanted to work, for example, in software engineering, which I know very little about. uh, And they succeeded. But I think it would have been much more efficient if I knew about their topic.
0: Yeah,
1: uh, they succeeded mostly because they were good students, rather than because I could help them in their topic. I could help them in the research process, but not in actual work. Um, whereas if if it's within my area, I could, I know what the related work is. I know when they they're they're um, they're starting down a path that's been well trodden. Uh, I know where there's things that they could learn from. Uh, I I can introduce them to people. Yeah. I could help get them internships at places. But if it's outside my area, I can't do that. Yeah. Now, the other extreme is where I give them a topic. But especially at the PhD level, I think that really defeats the whole purpose of a PhD. Uh, and again, I may insist that it's within my my scope of knowledge and I'll perhaps guide them to certain areas of interest. But part of the process of 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 doing a PhD is understanding how to actually discover a worthwhile problem that you can actually solve. And if I give it to them, then what's a PhD for?
0: Yeah. Yes. They've missed a really key part of what the skill of doing research is about.
1: Yeah. But that's also part of the frustration that we just talked yeah. about because uh, with some students find that easy to do. Other students find it very difficult to do. And it's through no lack of intellectual ability of the students, some of them, you know, just think in a different way or they haven't been trained to think that way yet.
0: It's also a question of, you know, passion, I think, as well, that if it isn't a topic that they somehow own themselves, if it's a happy coincidence of the topic you give them is something they really care about, great. But otherwise, you know, I think PhDs can be hard enough anyway without not really being in love with your topic from the beginning.
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, one one of the the, uh, the bits of advice I give to incoming students is that you have to make sure that this is something that you believe in and that you're passionate about. Because in a year or two's time, or three, when it comes time to writing it up, you're not going to be very happy about still working on the same thing, and if you start with something you're not happy about, it's going to be really bad at the end.
0: Yeah, exactly. Whereas
1: if you have passion about it, then you're joyful to the end, and that's what's I think that's really important. But it's also part of that discussion we just had about how do you choose a student. It's not just their abilities; it's about how well they match the particular interests that I have, and whether they're passionate about that. If they're not, well, maybe they should be working in a different area with a different prof.
0: Yeah, uh, I guess that you know, when you talked about younger faculty and feeling like you have to take everyone because you have to build up a lab and and you take on this sort of pressure to do that, uh, sometimes it might be a better strategy just to go a bit slower and and build it up more strategically or care- or thoughtfully in that way. Uh, 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 yeah,
1: absolutely, with the caveat that all these things are easy to say. Exactly, and I to know. Do. It's it's being pragmatic. Um, Sometimes you have to take what, what you can, what's there. Uh, I know that in my early career, I looked at students in my class, uh, my undergraduate class, and I nurtured them. Students that looked promising, again, not necessarily the ones with the highest marks. Sometimes they were just the ones that were really keen or just showed talent in other ways, and I nurture them. I'd give them a summer job in the lab um i we would often write papers together which was a really big deal for those folks i'd encourage them to go on to a master's and by the time they were in the program they were actually already well-developed uh,
0: students yeah
1: um so in some ways that was a much less risky way to to get students especially in a smaller place than uh than just trying to look at resumes um I should also mention that as part of this, like I'm at the University of Calgary, which is in Canada, it ha- it's, it's a decent university, but it's not one of the top US universities. Our de- Calgary as a city, it's kind of in the middle, middle of the prairies, granted we're in the Rockies, which is a draw, but um, if students have a choice between going to, let's say, Calgary or one of the big places like like toronto in canada or vancouver they're much sexier cities much bigger universities and it's harder to attract them so sometimes so that strategy of looking within your own ranks is really important and one thing i'm convinced about is that students that i get from our department through our program are absolutely just as good as students that i've seen at places like cmu or uw or all these other top ranked places in the world Um, Look within your own place, there's, there's brilliance wherever you want, and it's up to you to bring it out
0: and the outputs from your lab would would give testament to that as well
1: yeah, and it's yeah so I'd say so
0: talking of the lab you have been at Calgary for twenty five years yep <laughs> or or you were we were talk we'll talk about your move to emeritus status soon but mm-hmm. uh you you had the group lab there, did you have a lab from the very beginning
1: uh you know, I can't actually remember the the very early, early days, but we did create a lab called Group Lab, which was just a name mm-hmm. uh, to create a sense of identity uh, within ourselves. And uh, I was the only HCI prof at the I work in human computer interaction, so I was the only prof in that field at the time. Uh, so. You know, we create a little lab about, you know, five students, myself, and we got some equipment in, and it was very comfy and cozy and so on. Uh, so, that's where it all started. Uh, having a name is great uh, because, as I said, you go to conferences and, oh, let's wear a T-shirt and, uh, with <laughs> a name on it. Or, or all of a sudden, you get to be known as that lab from Calgary. Um in, in later years, uh, Sheila Carpendale, who's uh, a, a very well-known information visualization f- professor, uh, came to our department, and um, we dis- we decided that it would be beneficial to have a lab together. Uh, and we actually spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to design a lab with certain characteristics. Um, and the lab currently has, uh, let's see, I'm not sure. It's about I think there's about five faculty in it. Uh, there's, there's usually around 30 plus or minus people in there at, at any time. We have four four rooms full of people and equipment that are all interconnected and a fairly big presence. Um, but it didn't happen by accident. It happened by really considering th- even little things like how high should a desk partition be so that people have a sense of privacy while at the same time be, uh, not Blocking themselves off from their colleagues. Uh, where do we? How do we mix students in the lab? Um, we intentionally try to mix students across professors instead of taking one prof's students, stick them all in one corner, uh, because it uh, promotes cross fertilization we intentionally put equipment in the lab so everybody could see each other's work as they're doing it Um, we have a little dining table in there in a microwave so people stay around for lunch Mm -hmm. Um, and and on and on and on Um, again it didn't happen by accident Uh, Sheila and I were fortunate in that we were carpooling from Canmore to Calgary which is 110 kilometers away so it's about an hour and a hours drive so we we're with each other two hours every day at least massive amount of time talking about the lab about students and other things and that helped form that yeah and, uh, yeah it's, it's in part through again a lot of communication between us to set that up
0: but you said at the beginning it was you there were certain qualities that you wanted to achieve in the lab and you gave specific examples of things and so it seems like some of those qualities were about um Creating a sense of community and collaboration, creating an environment for collaboration and visibility of work and
1: a- absolutely it's it's um it's not a just it's not about giving a single student a good place to work, but creating a community where students learn from each other they see each other, a culture develops um and students are drawn into that culture mentorship is Although we do assign mentors, it also happens naturally. Opportunities are created within it. Um, the work is shown off to outsiders and, and on and on and on. So it, it is about that very much. Um, I visited other labs, which are some of them, which, you know, in terms of equivalent put us to shame. But, but one of the things I always look for is how well do students interact with each other and with the profs? Um, Uh, Here, here's a big thing for us. Our offices are in the lab. They're not in a hallway elsewhere. So we're part of the lab. Um, I actually spend more time when I'm there outside my office and just walk through than I do in my office. Um, I would say having our office in the lab is probably one of the biggest things uh, to do. And again, I visit a lot of sites where you have a lab. It's a room somewhere. And you have the prof's office elsewhere. Well, that means you're resorting to meetings. Scheduled meetings mostly.
0: So it seems like the effect of a lot of those choices, including having the office your office in the lab, and the way that you tried to set it up so that they're interacting with each other a lot, you've broken that connection of them students always looking to you as the professor supervisor for everything and creating much more of a peer network. So yeah. did it sort of is that also in some ways, relieving the pressure on you or sharing, sharing the load, sharing
1: the... I I guess we didn't design it to alleviate the pressure on us. We designed it because we thought it would be a richer space. Um, when a new student comes in, uh, certainly in the latter years, we actually gave them a mentor, usually a more senior student, to just help them get settled. Uh, so by mentor, it wasn't necessarily research ment- Mentor it could be something as simple as... You know, how do I fill out the university paperwork? Uh, gee, I got to do this. How do I do that? Um, who do I talk to and the like? Uh, within my own students, uh, depending on who is around, I could, I would uh, have sometimes have a senior student uh, be the research mentor for a more junior student because that's part of the training too. Mm-hmm. For yes. Especially if you're a PhD student, you should be training a master's student or an undergraduate. Uh, so again, it's, did it alleviate work well, I suppose, but I think the real goal was to create a rich experience for the students
0: yeah sounds great what what other things did you do in the lab that you think were particularly successful or even was there something that you tried that wasn't so successful
1: Ooh. so I'll tell you what wasn't successful um, back in the back when Sheila first came on campus it uh, a few years after that uh, we were We're actually moving into a new building. And for, for a variety of reasons that didn't, that are not worth explaining, I ended up having my lab in the new building and Sheila and I ended up having her lab in the old building. So we had every intention for our groups to interact, but we found fairly quickly that it felt like our groups were almost competing with each other rather than interacting with each other. And again, it's through no intent or desire of anyone, but just that physical separation. Yeah. So, um, so I actually dismantled my lab in the new building and went back to the old building. Wow. The, um, in spite of the newer furniture and other things, because in the end, they had a bit more space and it was more important for us to be together. Uh, so definitely physical, that physical separation uh spatial separation is is a big issue, um, and we and as our labs grew, I said that there's four rooms. Um, we we made sure that there were no barrier between the the actual rooms, so um, so we actually tore down walls and other things to make it a large contiguous space rather than separate spaces.
0: Did you have to have a fight with the university to do that, or was um no,
1: I th- it took time. Yeah but it wasn't really a fight it was more of just being patient
0: wow so you also you also said before that you know when you're in your office the office was part of the group but you also have a model of working because you lived in Canmore which was over an hour away 100 kilometers away miles away not kilometers isn't it yeah this
1: this gets into kind of an interesting issue which is work life a work life balance um so my other passion, aside from research, is, is I'm kind of a bit of an outdoor nut, as you know. It's, I love love backcountry skiing. I used to be an avid climber. Uh, I do a lot of scrambling, a lot of hiking, a lot of mountain biking. And by a lot, I really do mean a lot. I was, yes. I was biking like... Ten minutes ago, before we started, this I, I, I was
0: sure you were.
1: <laughs> I'm still here in my biking clothes, all sweaty, and but we won't get there. Lucky, into lucky,
0: that. we're just on a remote link then. <laughs> yeah.
1: So, uh, so I, so there's a couple of things that may that help me make my career choices, and this may seem like I'm going off on a tangent, but I'm not. Um, when I applied for a job, I applied for it in one place only, and that was at the University of Calgary because I wanted to live. In the Rocky Mountains,
0: because you love mountains and the activities that it affords, yeah
1: yeah, and it's uh perhaps in in the in the in America it's probably the only place that would be closer to it would be Boulder you know, uh, Colorado um so that was part of my choice if i didn't get a university job, I would have gone to some other local job um, I chose to live in the mountains and suffer a one one plus hour commute each each direction every. Every uh, day, because I wanted to be able to do my outdoor passions out of my door, and I knew that especially when kids come came along, that driving that hour and a half to get into the mountains uh, just wouldn 't happen yeah so uh, so we had a discussion about that, and it was a pretty easy one. It took about ten seconds where we decided to move to to the mountains and i 'd be the, the sacrificial commuter. Uh, so as part of that, I had to figure out, well, how am I going to adjust this work this work schedule, which is very demanding, as any academic knows, with my home life and play schedule? Mm-hmm. And, and I think it worked out very well. Um, I usually uh, went in three, three days a week, Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And those days were pretty well communication days. I would be talking to students, um, doing all the teaching, doing all the usual prof stuff that That's highly visible. I would do almost all my research, and by research, I mean writing and all the like, at home Mm -hmm. uh, on the Tuesdays and Thursdays. uh, Or evenings, sometimes nighttime, sometimes through the night, as, as everybody knows, too, as an academic. But what that did is that it kind of partitioned my life into one part where I'd be at the university doing all my prof stuff. My communications side versus my home part, where I would do the things that I could do alone, such as research, uh, such as writing. Um, but it also meant that I could play anytime I want. Yeah. So a typical day for me, if I was on a Tuesday when I was at home, is that I'd be working on something. Uh, around 11, I'd say, oh, I've had enough of this. And was wintertime, I'd go up to the Nordic Center, go skate skiing for an hour or two. I had to come back totally refreshed and be really productive. And then I could spend some time with the family and do all, all the like. Um, that would have been a bit harder to do if I was living in Calgary. Um, sometimes I would just blow off a day and I'd just say, oh, it's too nice that I'm going off hiking. And uh, <laughs> I'd come back refreshed too and it, I've, I've found that taking time off has never ever affected my product productivity so the commuting actually turned out to be a benefit but again I had to work at it I had to show my legitimacy at the department uh, which meant that I had to be as present as I could be I had to be as productive as I could be so it wouldn't be so people wouldn't think oh look he's gone again yeah and, and it work.
0: so you had to you had to manage the presentation of yourself and your work in a more deliberate way perhaps
1: Oh yeah, Tele- and telecommuters know that uh, things like being extremely responsive on email is part of that. As lots of Skype calls when that became popular. Uh, when I was at the university, making sure I dropped out, dropped into the the uh, department office, just even something simplest thing, hi to people, and just those the usual re- the, all the usual things we know about casual interaction, yes. just making sure that, that all ha- all happened.
0: And also the fact that you were researching in your group. Supporting remote collaboration. I, I remember that you used to sort of walk the talk in some ways and use your own collage system or Team Room systems. Uh, oh yeah, as
1: part it, of the. It's it's um it's part of the 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 passion of doing the work. I ended up um, in one era doing a lot of work on Groupware uh, for remote interaction, and a lot of the problems that came to mind. Uh, that we were working on happened because they were real life problems, um, and it's it's kind of funny how some of the things develop. Um, so, at one point, as a way to um, to manage you know meetings with with people, more serendipitous encounters, I actually had a setup where when I would sit behind my computer at home, I could press a button, and my office door, which opens up into the lab, would open up automatically had a remote motor attached to it i had a video thing set up where people could look into the door and Mm -hmm. there i was there was Mm -hmm. my head and all of his beauty (laughs) Um, and they could just come in and and uh, start chatting and there was some other automation going on pretty simple automation but uh you know that was an interesting experiment because i can talk about the technology but what was really interested interesting to me is all the reasons why that technology failed and it's 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 due to the subtleties of how people communicate with uh, uh, and uh, with each other, and also expectations. So, just to illustrate a point, um, if I happen to be working in the evening, so let's say it's seven or eight o'clock, I'd come in, sit behind my desk at home, press my little button, my door opens, and I could now look in the lab. But from the lab side, here's some students working late. They're sitting down around the table, which happened to be right outside my office door. It's all really quiet in there. Then all of a sudden, this door opens. Spooky. And here I am looking in on them. Checking up on them. And they thought that was a violation of privacy. And So again, these are things that aren't expected that one could see. And they become really interesting in their own right. Um, I I once heard... And I'm not sure who said this. That uh, I think this is a Nobel Prize winner who said that. When asked, you know, how do you decide what to work on? And she answered, "Well, if I have a project, I don't look for the things that work. I look for all those little things that didn't work that are unexplained, and that's what's interesting. So I've found." You know, again, turning my own life, my own work habits into part of my research. have presented tremendous opportunities to, to try to look at failures and to try to understand them.
0: Yeah. um, I remember you talking often about working and then sort of saying, I've had enough and going off cycling and doing doing one of the sort of mad activities. And you know that there's all of the psychology research now that supports the, the value of doing that and, and taking that break and getting out and doing something physical and getting out into green space. So you've been ahead of your time in lots of ways. Uh,
1: well. <laughs> <laughs> but,
0: but I also remember, and this this had a big impact on me, I remember one time you just telling me about Sitting on the weekend, working on a paper, and it was for a conference. It wasn't a really major conference, and the kids were outside playing. It was a nice day, and you just said to yourself, "What am I doing here? Doing this? Um, there are plenty of other conferences. I don't need to get this paper in." And you closed up your computer and went out and played with the kids. And that always stayed with me. Yeah, the, the actual story is
1: a little bit different. Which is that that there was a party that my that we're supposed both going to go to my wife went and I said, no, I got to stay at home and work, but it's the same effect. The, but that was the very first time where I realized that work will never end and it's up to me to balance my life. Um, we're, you know, one of the lovely things about academic life is um, that there are things that, there are things that we have to do. But most of the things in our job are things we want to do. And we get to choose that. And the problem is not that we have too much work that we don't want to do, but the problem is that we have too much work that we do want to do. And we have to balance that off against family, against fun, against downtime, just sitting in front of a TV or reading a really bad book, which I tend to do, um... And the problem is that the research opportunities are so exciting, and the people asking us are so good that we we don't want to say no. Yeah. So, at some point, I realized that I can't just keep saying yes to everything, and I can't keep just pretending that there was room for everything. Mm-hmm. So, and that uh, because if I if if we do that, the family goes away. Yeah. Because they're expendable. Or they seem to be expendable because yeah. they they seem to be less urgent. They, my, you know, you, your wife marries a contract with you that or signs a contract that says yes, I'll stay with you forever, but work doesn't. Um, the the kids are going to be there, you know, whether you're present yeah. or not, yeah. and fun. You put that off for a little bit, but that's a really bad idea. So the strategy that I then then had is that when I want to do something new, or even when somebody who I really respect that asked me to do something that I want to do to join them on a project, to do some service. The question I would also ask myself is if I said yes, which I really want to do, what should I stop doing?
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And if I, if there is nothing else I would want to release, and that included family time and my own personal time to do that, then I'd say no. Um, and that's really tough to do. Saying no when you really want to say yes is incredibly challenging because our first reaction is, yeah, that is something I want to do. But we can't do it all. And it's, and it's really bad to promise 180% and deliver only 100%. And
0: that, you, you talked about time being a, a finite resource. And that's a really nice way of thinking about setting up the decision for yourself, but if I say yes to this, what do I need to let go? Because there's only so much.
1: And, and the time that, we, that you, you brought up where I just said, you know, I could just save this paper for the next conference and go out and, with my wife and go to this party was my realization that, yeah, you know, uh, there's other things that are more important and, you know, I'll just let one paper go for a little bit. And,
0: and did it get written for another conference?
1: Oh, absolutely. And, you know, nothing has suffered because of it. Nobody's noticed on it. It's <laughs> I never had a bad performance appraisal in my life. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, I'm not saying to not work. I'm just saying that there's a different, you can take, you can take control of where you find that balance.
0: Is there any time that you've actually re, re, regret, you know, probably not the right word, but is there any time when you look back, you think mm, maybe that was a no that I should have said yes to? Um, no. (laughs) That's great to hear because you often wonder, because I think often when you're saying, I really want to do something, ah, but I I can't fit it in. There's this sort of thing of, am I missing out or did I miss something, miss an opportunity that won't come again or?
1: The, The, you know, this all goes back to the fact that we're, it's not just one opportunity. There's already like five or eight or 10 or 20 opportunities that you're already doing. So if there are things that you want to do already there, what what are you losing? Um, I've actually found the other, the problem is the other way you say yes. And then in retrospect, you realize you should have said no. Um, This comes with, for example, taking on too many grad students. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's one period of time where I was supervising 12 students and they're all good students and I thought it and it was too much yeah. I wasn't any more productive with it because I couldn't spend the time that I wanted to with with 12 so for me again this is personal my preferred group size is between four to six right not 12.
0: Do you have a good sense of I don't know how many conferences you will review for or journals you will review for or sort of reference letters you'll write do you have some sort of set of boundaries that you set for yourself as a bench yeah,
1: yeah um, I get asked a lot I 'm on several editorial boards um, and it's, it's and my bottom line is if it's a journal or a conference that i'm not personally attached to, or the paper isn't something that I really know about i 'll gladly say no to it. Um, if it 's not within my expertise, i 'll say no to it. Um, on the other hand, there's a lot of obligations. I've asked a lot of people to referee. I've asked a lot of other people to do service duties, and and I certainly will return the favors. Yeah. Um, I feel there's certain uh, journals and conferences and the like that I have invested a lot of energy into, and I certainly want to stay involved in those. Uh, again, it's a balancing act. Um, we'll always review too many Uh, Too many papers. Yes. Um, The more senior you get, the more letters you're asked for to write about your colleagues. And boy, you know, I don't want to let, if there's a colleague that I know who's going for promotion and I think they're good, I want to write that letter for them. Mm. Um, So sometimes, you know, there's give and take in all this.
0: Um, You just reminded me of something when you were talking there as well, when you talk about wanting to do something to help someone. And I've always been impressed by your generosity as well. So, you know, you were one of the first people who made your teaching slides and materials fully available on the web and uh, actively sort of said to people, you know, you are welcome to come and take my slides and, and use them for your class. Just acknowledge the source. And I think that's been... That's been a really important contribution as well in in that sort of generosity and sharing. And I know that when I first started lecturing, some of those slides were really helpful just to work from. <laughs> uh,
1: you know, fortunately, the uh, the internet age has caught up with sharing, which is lovely. Um, there's lots of means to do that now. Yes, there are. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll be quite quite frank with you. When I did start sharing those slides it was it was almost a side effect of the fact that it was a lot easier for me to put my slides on the web for students to access than it was to print them out and do all the other stuff and as part of that i thought let's make it available to everyone so it was actually one of my secondary goals to release everything to the world uh-huh. uh but it's the itself great. was the same and i still do the same like um i have a a website on my website um there's a whole section on grad tips, which are tips yes. for grad students. Uh, and these include things like developing a research topic, how to write your first chapter, uh, whether a grad student life is, is good for you, how to do presentations, and, and all, how to referee and all the like. And again, that was written mostly for my students, but at the same time, I was very, very mindful that this would be very beneficial to us as well. So sometimes giving things... Actually, has a personal benefit at well. You can be yeah. both self and yeah. and give things away up, at the same up time. Up Everybody, up. yep, nice.
0: Yeah. You, you know, you were saying there are lots of ways that you can share now that the internet's evolved. So, talking about changes, you've talked about lots of choices that you've been able to make to try to have a really good sort of work-life balance and and still a successful career. Do you think that the how do you see the changes that have happened in academia generally over the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years?
1: Um, the pressure to publish is massively different now than it was then. But at the same time, the opportunities to publish are massively higher. Um, when I've been on a variety of hiring committees and the expectation of the hiring committees is, is, is huge, um, partly because of the competition, um, and I've heard this in your other interviews, but if you get a resume with, you know, 10 papers from the top conference in it, this is as a grad student, that's kind of expected now. Mm. Uh, whereas in my day when I was like, if I were to apply today, I would be be laughed out. Uh, like I'm not even a, a, originally a computer scientist. I was a microbiologist and a high school teacher. And I, I applied to grad student as a, you know, having two computer science courses under my belt. I wouldn't even get into grad school today. I wouldn't even get my application passed. Probably not actually, would you? Um, So, and the same thing goes for for hiring for academic positions. So, um, it is a different life. And to the extent that one has to realize that uh, there are certain expectations, there is competition, and to be strategic about that. So... Uh, for example, if I was a grad student gearing up for an academic job, instead of just saying, oh, I'll write a bunch of papers, I'd want to be strategic about well, what papers do I want to write, where should they go, how can I show that I produce good impact papers, um, do I spend my time writing a paper, a poster mm-hmm. so I can get three posters and list them under my resume, or should I actually spend my time doing one good paper. Um, all these little things. This is, again, th- good things to talk to your, to a supervisor about or to a mentor. Um, how do you be strategic about the choices you make so you can work efficiently?
0: But do you think that we can ever change the system from the other side as well so that we d- we lower the bar in a way? And I don't mean lower the bar in terms of lowering quality, but take more time and care to interpret someone's CV in the context of it um, or I don't know well,
1: well, the, the where's it going is, to stop the, the competition is a competition It's it's in some ways it's driven by the people who apply if you get if you get uh five people who are just mega producers and who slaves throughout their grad career getting these papers out with no personal joy in their life or whatever it's just all been work 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 you know that's who you're competing against um i, I don't think a committee can necessarily help that um i i know i even know in our own lab sometimes i i, I have a hard time telling, getting students to take time off it's like I, you know, what I find really sad is when a student comes in and they're they're 19, they're all fit and keen and other things, and then it's two and a half years later and they're overweight and they're spending way too much time in the seat. And I say, you got to change this. And they don't. Mm. You know, and or don't write this paper. Let it wait. There's no urgency. It's just yet another conference deadline. Another one will be be ready when your work is ready. Yeah. they can't let go. And... um <sighs>
0: I I don't think think
1: we're we're, like it's all a self escalating thing.
0: I wonder if there are other qualities or criteria that we can start arguing for to to bring a richer, more nuanced sort of assessment of people when we're making hiring decisions.
1: It would be well in one sense we do already but this is something that students don't necessarily know. Um, I I'm not sure what it's like at your universities, but uh, at ours, when a person comes in, it's not just, we expect them to be able to give a good research lecture, and it'd be surprising if they couldn't. Yes. Um, we expect them to give a teaching lecture. So, we actually set them up in a classroom situation, and we ask them, do we do a mock teaching session? But really, a lot of the time in in interviews is spent with one-on-ones or in people to get a sense of, well, what's this person really like? Are they a good citizen of the department? Are they pleasant? Um, do they seem well-rounded? Or are they so focused on a particular research niche that really they wouldn't be a good grad supervisor because they're too narrow? These are all things that are, that really address the breadth of, of the candidate. So maybe that's one thing we can do is to try to inform students or head or guide student that says look it's not just about your research it's all about you being a well-rounded person but i don't think they listen
0: yeah no I, you're probably right so um talking of well-rounded you are now um emeritus professor mm-hmm. can you tell us about making that decision
1: sure this is a, was an easy decision for me i've been at the university for 25 years um I love my job. I love the people I work with. Grad students are are fantastic. I'm really going to miss them. I really miss teaching in classes. Mm. Um, But this goes back to to balance. Um, um, I'm at this certain age where I live a very active lifestyle and I want to be able to make sure that I have the time to do all my other passions, my outdoor passions. I'm not going to do them particularly well when I'm 75.
0: No, it's so going to be a different. So I retired different.
1: when I was 61. Um, you know, it's now been a year. And I've been spending a lot of time mountain biking and hiking and backcountry skiing and with my wife. And I've done all this before. You know, I did this throughout my academic career, but now I'm just raising it a notch. And, and I love it. Yeah. And I'm still fulfilling my academic desires because I did stay on as emeritus uh, prof. I still have a couple of students that I'm backseat supervising. I have some volunteer research projects where I'm working with some biologists on, on, um, on, on some stuff. I won't bore you with it. Um, and I consider that almost like my crossword puzzle yeah. work. Where, right. uh, when it's a rainy day out, when I'm kind of tired of being on my bike, I just want to do something else. I can do that. And it's awesome. So it's balanced in a different way.
0: It sounds Um, excellent. Lots of uh, freedom to choose how you want to spend your days, but still connecting with lots of the things that you want to do. Just changing the, shifting the balance of how much you do of it.
1: It does. And it's not all fun and games. Like, you know, I still have to deal with falling off my bike and and wiping the blood off my face after uh, after a bad ride. So (laughs) so there's pitfalls on the other side, too. That's good, though. Uh,
0: we should probably look at wrapping up and I uh, just wonder if any you have any sort of final thoughts.
1: If, if there's any one conversation that I think pervades between academics is work-life balance. And there is no easy solution to that. And even with this conversation it may sound like I've I solved it, but I didn't. I just found a balance that sort of worked. Um, there are certainly long days and things. Um, it's really being strategic about your time, scheduling your personal time in your calendar and treating it just as importantly as other people's times. Mm-hmm. So if I schedule off and I want to take off two hours a day or I want to take off three days, put that in your calendar and don't let it go. Yeah. Don't make excuses. It's okay to say, I can't because uh, that time's committed. You don't have to tell them it's committed for personal stuff. Uh, not being driven by the next conference deadline, um, that is being driven by what you by your work yeah. when it's ready. That's what should drive you, uh, drive what you do. Um, don't let your work take over. Um, well, you know, I did a sabbatical at your place. Our choice was not just the institute, but we wanted a family to be in Australia, and we had a great time. It and was we,
0: great having you there yeah, as well. We would work
1: for three or four days, and then I we would bugger off or four days yeah. Yeah, because that was the time to get refreshed um not getting into so otherwise not get into the, the vortex of your colleagues who are more intense than you um i mentioned that i work with sheila carbondale she's she's an amazing person in terms of the energy and her output and it's really easy to to just get sucked into a vortex and say, oh god i have to have that many students i have to do that much stuff and mm-hmm. say no that's not my pace i'd rather you know, kick back a little bit more. Um, And it's easy to do, especially if you're in a high-end university where everybody's just going for the gusto. Um, uh, You know, turning down, as I mentioned before, turning down the things that you want to do um, just because you realize you have enough or substituting a new thing for an old. So So there's a few strategic choices. They're not easy ones. You have to be mindful of them. Um. Not get sucked in. It's a great job.
0: Great point to finish on. That's it. And
1: yeah. And if there's any one thing about this job, is that we're our own worst enemies. Nobody is telling us to do all the things we want to do.
0: Good. Well, Saul, it's just been brilliant being able to talk to you again. I'm really glad to see you enjoying your new life, and um, you can get back on the bike now and go for another ride.
1: Thank you, Geraldine. And I hope to see you in Austria when we
0: come there skiing. I hope you come too. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more, you can subscribe to Changing Academic Life on iTunes and you can follow Change Acad Life on Twitter. You can also go to the website www.changingacademiclife.com